Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The reason why you have crime that has spiraled out of control in so many of these different areas is because you have politicians putting woke ideology ahead of public safety. Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was in Chicago Monday to address Chicago's police union, which has endorsed one of the nine Democrats running for mayor in next Tuesday's pivotal Chicago election. We'll look at how the candidates are addressing public safety and much more. With Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago, Black Studies professor Barbara Ransby and retired Illinois Congress member Luis Gutierrez. We'll also speak with longtime Chicago activist Frank Chapman about how the Chicago police murder of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton in 1969 is linked to a measure on next Tuesday's ballot in Chicago that establishes community control of the police through local police councils. And it was 58 years ago today Malcolm X was assassinated at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem. The history of unpunished violence against our people clearly indicates that we must be prepared to defend ourselves or we will continue to be a defenseless people at the mercy of a ruthless and violent racist mob. We'll look at the life and legacy of Malcolm X with renowned activist and scholar Dr. Angela Davis. She's giving a keynote address tonight at the Shabazz Center which is the site of the Audubon Ballroom where Malcolm X was gunned down 58 years ago. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Turkey, at least six people were killed Monday as two powerful earthquakes shook the southern province of Hatay. The magnitude 6.3 and 5.8 quakes were felt across Turkey's border region into northern Syria, sparking panic among survivors of two even more massive quakes earlier this month, which killed more than 47,000 people in both countries, a toll that's certain to rise in the days and weeks ahead. On Monday, Istanbul's mayor warned about 90,000 buildings are at risk of collapse if a massive earthquake were to strike Turkey's largest city. Meanwhile, a convoy of trucks carrying humanitarian aid crossed Turkey's Baba Hawa border, a crossing into Syria Monday, two days after the head of the World Food Program criticized Syrian authorities for blocking access to the area. Aid workers say they're now contending with a shortage of tents for thousands of Syrians in need.
The United Nations and relief agencies have not reached us. In shelters, there are some 200 or 300 families, but we cannot secure tents for them. And if there are tents available, their prices have doubled. Russian President Vladimir Putin has promised to withdraw from the New START Treaty, the last remaining nuclear arms control agreement between the United States and Russia. Putin made the pledge during his annual State of the Nation address earlier today, where he gave no sign Russia's preparing to end the war in Ukraine. Putin accused Western nations of provoking the conflict. The Western elites do not conceal their goals. As they say, it's a direct quote, to bring Russia a strategic defeat. What does that mean for us? It means to end us once and for all. It means they plan to turn a local conflict into a global confrontation. We understand it exactly like that. We will react to it accordingly. This is because, in this case, it is about the very existence of our country. Meanwhile, President Biden is in Warsaw, Poland today, where he's giving a major address on U.S. support for Ukraine ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion Friday. Biden's also meeting with leaders of the nine countries on NATO's eastern flank, including Polish President Andrzej Duda. Biden's trip to Poland comes a day after he announced a half billion dollars worth of additional U.S. weaponry for Ukraine during a surprise visit to Kyiv, Ukraine. The French army has left Burkina Faso, officially ending its military operation in the West African country less than a month after leaders asked France to withdraw its contingent of hundreds of troops. Their departure marks a significant step in scaling down France's military presence in Africa's Sahel region. Protesters had long denounced a 2018 military accord that allowed French soldiers to fight armed groups in Burkina Faso, saying France's army had done little to actually tackle violence that's engulfed the country in recent years. We don't want them on our territory because when they are here and our people die, they do nothing. If they stay beyond the exit date, authorities should expect us in their base because we are going to go there. The medical humanitarian group Doctors Without Borders has suspended its work in Burkina Faso after armed assailants killed two staff members earlier this month. In Mexico, at least 17 asylum seekers were killed in a bus crash in the state of Puebla Sunday afternoon. Most of them came from Venezuela, Colombia and Central America. The bus was carrying 45 passengers when it turned over on the highway as it headed north toward Mexico City. This comes just days after a bus carrying 66 U.S.-bound migrants plunged off a cliff in Panama last week, killing at least 39 people, including children. Rights groups warn Cambodia is ratcheting up its crackdown on free speech and human rights after Prime Minister Hun Sen ordered one of Cambodia's last independent news organizations to shut down last week. He accused the outlet, Voice of Democracy, of attacking him and his son, who's also presumed successor. This is South Winith, media director at Voice of Democracy. Uh, they feel like um, BOD has been, play, has been playing an, uh, a key role or important role in Cambodia in bringing the voice to the voiceless and also one over people and by bringing the, all the issues to the uh, government. So without BOD, we, we just afraid that this could be uh, a big step back or uh, uh, press freedom in Cambodia. In Iraq, prominent environmentalist Jasim al-Assadi was released last week, two weeks after he was kidnapped near Baghdad. 
The motivation for his abductions remains unclear. The Goldman Prize-winning activist is head of the group Nature Iraq, which fights for the protection of Iraq's southern wetlands as they face increasing challenges due to the climate crisis. In Ohio, one person was killed and 12 others injured Monday as a large explosion tore through a metal factory outside Cleveland, shattering windows, scattering debris around the site, setting vehicles on fire. Residents of Oakwood Village reported a scent like burning oil after the explosion, which sent a huge plume of smoke billowing into the sky. Records from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, show the factory's operator, I. Schumann and Company, was recently cited in several complaints. In one instance, a worker suffered third-degree burns. In another case, OSHA cited the company for a serious violation over its control of hazardous energy. Meanwhile, the Ohio Department of Health is opening a health clinic today for residents of East Palestine, who've reported health effects, including including headaches, sore throats and respiratory problems following the February 3rd derailment of a Norfolk Southern train. The crash led to a massive fire and release of toxic chemicals, including vinyl chloride. The head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Michael Regan, is headed back to East Palestine today. His trip comes as Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is coming under fire for not visiting the crash site. Buttigieg told reporters Monday, quote, when the time is right, I do plan to visit East Palestine, East Palestine, I don't have a date for you right now, Buttigieg said. To see our coverage of the Ohio rail disaster, go to democracynow.org. Students at Michigan State University returned to classes Monday, one week after a gunman's rampage left three students dead and five others critically wounded. Many MSU students and faculty reported they weren't ready to resume classes and need more time to heal. Meanwhile, hundreds of students and their supporters gathered at the Michigan State Capitol Monday for a sit-in protest demanding Michigan legislature put new limits on guns. This is MSU senior Maha Kangara. I texted my family, friends, and loved ones for what I thought would be the last time ever. The Wi-Fi and data kept going in and out, and for every minute over four hours, I thought I was going to die. I didn't think I was going to make it out alive anymore. While I'm standing here before you today lucky to be alive, I should not be lucky to be alive. The right to bear arms should have never come before our right to live, and my life matters more than guns. And journalism's prestigious George Polk Awards have been announced. Among the 2022 winners is former Democracy Now! producer Sharif Abdel-Kadus, a reporter for the independent Egyptian outlet Matamasser. Sharif won the Foreign Television Award for the killing of Shireen Abu Akla, along with senior producer Kavitha Shakuru and executive producer Leila Al-Aryan. The remarkable documentary investigates the killing of Palestinian-American journalist and longtime Al Jazeera correspondent Shireen Abu Akla by Israeli forces. Last May, during a raid in the occupied West Bank, it draws on videos and eyewitness accounts of Abu Akla's killing to establish that she was fatally shot in the head by an Israeli sniper, a finding supported by numerous other press investigations. Shireen Abu Akla and other reporters were wearing blue helmets and blue flak jackets, clearly emblazoned with the word press. Sharif Abdel Kadus and Leila Larian were working for. Um, Al Jazeera's fault lines.
to see our interview with Sharif Abdel-Kudus and Lena Abuakla, niece of Shireen Abuakla, you can go to our website at democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, an expected 2024 presidential aspirant, was in Chicago Monday to address Chicago's police union, which has endorsed one of the nine Democrats running for mayor in next Tuesday's pivotal Chicago election. We'll look at how the candidates are addressing public safety and much more in a minute. I just want to ask a question. Who really cares to save a world in despair? Who really cares? There'll come a time, there'll come a time when the world won't be singing, when the world won't be singing. Flowers won't grow. Flowers won't grow. Bells won't be ringing. And the bells won't be ringing. Who really cares? Who really cares? Who's willing to try? Who is willing to try? To save the world. To save the world. When I look at the world, when I look at the world, it fills me with sorrow. It fills me with sorrow. Little children today, children today, oh, are really gonna suffer tomorrow. Really suffer tomorrow. Oh, what a shame. Oh, Save the Children by Devon Gilfillian, Jamila Woods, and Jason Eskridge. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, and in Chicago, Juan Gonzalez will be joining us in a minute. We begin today's show in Chicago, where a key mayoral race is just a week away on Tuesday, February 28th. Voters are being courted by nine Democratic candidates. But on Monday, Republican Governor Ron DeSantis waded into the uh, race from Florida when he gave a speech in the Chicago suburbs at an event hosted by the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police. The reason why you have crime that is spiraled out of control in so many of these different areas is because you have politicians putting woke ideology ahead of public safety. Chicago's Democratic mayoral candidates tried to distance themselves from DeSantis, including Paul Vallis, who's endorsed by the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police. He's the former superintendent of Chicago Public Schools. Also running for mayor, incumbent Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Congressmember Chewy Garcia, Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, and businessman Willie Wilson. Next Tuesday's election is an off-cycle election, and voter turnout could be low. If there's no clear majority, 
two candidates will go to a runoff election on April 4th. For more, we go to Chicago, where we're joined by two guests. Luis Gutierrez is a former Democratic Congress member from Illinois. He served from 1993 until his retirement in 2019 and was a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He was also a member of the Chicago City Council from 1986 until his election to Congress. We should note that he is supporting Chewy Garcia. Also with us is Barbara Ransby, historian, author, and activist, who's supporting Johnson. Ransby is a professor of Black Studies, Gender, and Women's Studies and History at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Her latest book is Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. Her recent piece for Truth Out is headlined, Ron DeSantis's attack on black studies is textbook proto-fascism. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Barbara Ransby, let's begin with you. Can you talk about why this Chicago mayoral race is important for people to understand all over the country? What's at stake? Yeah. Thank you for having me, Amy, uh, and thank you for covering the DeSantis issue, because that's an important one, too. Um, you know, Chicago's at a crossroads. Uh, the Chicago is a city historically steeped in racism, deeply divided by uh, both race and class. We've had some pretty awful mayors <laughs> over the years, and it's been a site uh, of police violence and torture uh, for many uh, years, and communities have been traumatized by that. This mayoral election, we have an opportunity to have a, a truly progressive candidate, a truly progressive mayor. Um, and that, that opens possibilities for our movements in Chicago in ways that we have not seen uh, in a very long time. Um, I, I would say, you know, it's a complicated race. There's nine people in it. <laughs> uh, and some of their demands do overlap. Some of their platforms do overlap. But one of the reasons I'm supporting Brandon Johnson, and I supported Chewy last time, and Chewy does come out of progressive movements, but Brandon is the movement candidate in this election. Uh, he is supported by the, the leftists in the city council, um, from Rosano Rodriguez to uh, Byron uh, Lopez, Sija Lopez, uh, and others, and, and the fighting unions in this town. You know, the unions have, the teachers unions all over the country have been an inspiration, but Chicago Teachers Union has been a particular inspiration, and that's the movement that Brandon comes out of, uh, protege of Karen Lewis. So, uh, and then most importantly, I've, I've really been won over by uh, young grassroots organizers, black and brown, the kids who were in the streets to protest Laquan McDonald's murder, uh, who have been marching and demanding jobs, demanding uh, attention to neglected and abandoned communities. Uh, they have been marching in the streets, sit-ins at City Hall over the years. And this cycle, they are knocking on doors and phone banking for, for Brandon Johnson. So to have a candidate that comes out of movement, committed to movement, accountable to movement, and who can speak to and excite uh, young black and brown people in this city, uh, to me, is a real opportunity to uh, point Chicago in a different direction and to, to not have it be the place where uh, rogue cops run, run the town and, and racist cops run the town and, and rich people feel comfortable and poor people are afraid. So... Uh, so that's why it's an important uh, election, and we are hoping for a good outcome next week. 
And former Congress member Luis Gutierrez, it's great to see you again. Um, You're supporting Chuy Garcia. Um, Can you address why you are? Neither of you are supporting the current mayor, Lori Lightfoot. Sure. Well, we both supported Lori Lightfoot, as did the immense population in the city of Chicago, because we looked at her as a true reformer four years ago. She's turned out to be an abysmal failure, abysmal failure. Because property taxes have skyrocketed in the city of Chicago. Crime has skyrocketed in the city of Chicago. And guess what? So has pollution in the Latino community. She said she was going to be against the asphalt company and then gave them a $50 million. She blew up a chimney in the middle of COVID, causing devastation and environmental hazards to our community that we still don't know. That's Flory Lightfoot. Jesus Garcia? Yes. Karen Lewis, eight years ago, as she was dying of cancer called Jesus Garcia and said, would you carry on the progressive movement, the president of the CTU? He's the same Jesus Garcia today, a progressive leader who has crisscrossed this country for Bernie Sanders. We all know that, that he's a national spokesperson for him. We know where he's at on immigration. We know where he's at on crime. We know where he's at on income inequality. And as Harold used to teach us, both Chewy and I, because we learned from him, the first progressive mayor of the city of Chicago, the first black mayor of the city of Chicago, where we built a coalition of black and white and Latinos. And I'm proud to say that Latinos, over 60 percent of us in the general election in 1983 and subsequently in 1987, voted to build such a coalition. Who led that coalition? Jesus Chuy Garcia. Brendan Johnson's a great Cook County commissioner. He's been a Cook County commissioner for four years. Chewy's been a Cook County commissioner for eight years, a state senator for eight years, a member of Congress for five years, a city council member for seven years. He has over 34 years of experience. He is the experienced candidate and he can build coalitions as he has in the past. Now, addressing the issue of crime, I think we have to understand something. I don't go by the polls. I don't go by the rhetoric of the politicians. I go by speaking to people each and every day in their homes. Over 600 households I've sat in their homes speaking to them. They're afraid to go out and let their children play. They're afraid to do grocery shopping. They won't come downtown. It's not a psychosis that's occurring in the Latino community as I go out there and knock on doors in white communities and black communities. They are afraid and we need to bring a leader to the city of Chicago that is going to free them from that. And Jesus Chuy Garcia is the one person who can finally make sure that policemen are hold, held accountable to the highest standards when they go wrong. Laquan McDonald's, that will not go in vain. Laquan McDonald, he lived 17 precious years and they put 16 bullets into him. That should not happen in the city of Chicago we're seven times more likely if you're black to be shot by a Chicago police officer, three times more likely if you're Latino. We're going to hold them accountable. But at the same time, at the same time, we're going to make sure that the community and the men and women that put on that blue uniform each day are speaking to each other, are fighting together to reestablish order in our community and to reestablish security in our community. 
Uh, Juan Gonzalez is now joining us, Democracy Now! co-host. And Juan, last week on February 8th, uh, you co-hosted a mayoral forum with many of the candidates. Um, and now this week, you have the backdrop of the presidential aspirant, not yet declared, um, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, coming to Chicago, addressing the Fraternal Order of Police. Um, and uh, they are endorsing one of the candidates that's running in the Democratic um, race. Can you talk about having moved from the East Coast to Chicago, why this is all so critical, Juan? Well, obviously, you're talking about one of the uh, largest cities uh, in the nation. And the issues uh, that are being raised here in the Chicago race are similar to many occurring in, that occurred in the New York mayoral race that are occurring in many uh, local races around the country. Uh, the issue of how uh, progressive police accountability will occur, uh, what will be the nature of the em empowerment of local communities uh, in their governance. Uh, and uh, so these are some of the similar issues that are playing here. But I, I wanted to ask Barbara, in all likelihood, if the polls are unless the polls are way off, uh, none of the uh, nine candidates, including the current mayor, will get a, a majority of the vote here in this first round. And your sense of uh, the uh, clearly the business community is largely lining up uh, behind uh, uh, Paul Vallis. Uh, uh, the only white candidate of the nine in the race. Uh, I'm wondering what's your sense of if, uh, depending on who uh, who ends up as the two uh, two facing each other in a runoff, uh, what kind uh, will the progressive movement be still able to real uh, to come together again uh, if if one of the pro progressive candidates ends up among the two? I think yes, we will. Um, look, we 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 choose our candidate. Uh, the person who we think is the best person to, to move a progressive agenda at any given moment in time. And then we deal with the political reality in hand that we are dealt. None of us are going to vote and feel like our job is done. Whoever is elected, we're going to have to fight to hold them accountable. We're going to have to push them because they're going to be pushed on all sides. So I do think the movement will come together behind the most uh, uh, progressive candidate in a runoff. Um, Paul Vallis is our worst nightmare. Um, and, you know, the fact that DeSantis comes now, I think, has really lit a fire under some people who may have been uh, less excited about voting in this cycle, although I think there is a, a lot of motivation and a lot of excitement, um, because I think he really shows us a kind of authoritarian future, a neo-fascist future. Um, you know, he is reminding us of the worst case scenario, DeSantis, that is. Uh, and, and, of course, he's aligned with folks who are aligned with Paul Vallis. So I think we take that threat. Uh, very seriously. But I do want to go back to this question of police and crime, right? We we saw the largest mobilization in this country's history in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. That was not an isolated incident. People feel terrorized in their homes, not just by crime, but also by what the police will do uh, if they go out of their homes. What, what will happen to their sons and daughters if they're um, you know, coming back from a party and get pulled over by by police. You know, what will happen if police come and indiscriminately decide who's a criminal and who's not? Uh, so 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 there are a lot of fears and we have to have complex answers to complex problems. Right. I mean, we all want simple solutions. We want pu pu push button solutions. 
Cops sound like a good answer to people because that's what we've been socialized to listen for. Uh, but that is not a solution. And so what I'm looking to, you know, in this race and what we're all hoping for is um, a set of solutions from housing to jobs uh, to de-escalation uh, uh, in, in our communities to viable schools that really um, give children, young people alternatives. We're looking for all that. Uh, in whoever lands in the uh, in City Hall in Chicago, but yes, we will unite around a progress um, the most progressive candidate or the least harmful candidate uh, when when this thing settles. But we we have higher hopes than that. And Luis Gutierrez, I wanted to ask you. Uh, clearly, Chuy Garcia is the only uh, Latino official running in this race. Yet some of the polls are indicating that he's not even uh, registering majority support among the uh, Latino electorate. I'm wondering your thoughts about that. Are the polls way off, or or is the Latino community? developed to the point where it doesn't matter whether you are the same ethnicity, they're looking at your political views and your perspectives uh, primarily. Sure, sure. Well, number one, one, WBZ, NBC Telemundo uh, put out a poll 10 days ago showing Jesus Garcia in second place. He's always been in first and second place in every scientific poll, not survey. And he deserves to be there. And one, I don't know what the polls say, but I invite you to my home. Last night, I called a Latino woman. She's 72 years old. And you know what she told me? She said, tell Chewy, yo soy del. I have never heard such an endorsement of a candidate. I am his, yo soy del. I wish people could understand <laughs> the impact of those words and what they had on me. He's going to carry, let me just make it clear. When he ran against Rahm Emanuel, he carried the Latino community. Not only in the primary, in the first set of elections, as Dr. Lee has suggested, there's going to be a runoff. He carried it even more overwhelmingly in the runoff, and that was eight years ago. Since then, he has stood up. And I just want to talk a little bit about progressive politics. Who is the progressive candidate in this race? There may be more than one, because I remember 1986, gay rights ordinance. Chewy and I had just arrived in the city council, the cardinal. Bernadine, the cardinal of the city of Chicago, threatened with excommunication. Chewy's Catholic. I'm Catholic. He comes from a community devoutly Catholic, and yet he voted for the gay rights ordinance. It was defeated because in 1986, we didn't have the power to pass it. We subsequently passed it in the Chicago City Council, and we've moved forward. Chewy has always been standing by women and reproductive rights has a history of doing that for 34 years as a Cook County commissioner, as a state legislature, as a state senator, as a member of Congress. But he's also been for immigrant rights. And unfortunately, too many times in the progressive movement, immigrant rights are always put at the bottom of the shelf, not seen, not heard of. Chewy will make sure that those immigrants are heard. And many people will say, well, maybe because they're Latino. Yes, they're Latino, but they're also Haitian. But they're also Irish. They're also Polish. They come. They're also Asian. They come from all over the world. The 11 undocumented workers every day go to work in this country, build this country, but have no rights in this country. Chewy's going to put a bright light on those workers too. see the magic about Jesus Garcia is that he sees everyone, that he was nurtured, nurtured 
by Harold Washington, the first black mayor of the city of Chicago. He knows what it is to build a coalition no. together. And as Harold said to us, I see everybody. I will treat everybody fairly. But I also see people who have been unseen in the past. And Barbara Ransby, we just have about uh, 30 seconds, but I'm wondering your sense of the impact of other uh, questions uh, in this race. For instance, the elections of uh, of uh, the new uh, police councils, uh, community councils at the district level. Is this going to have an impact on turnout? What's your sense of what the turnout will be like? Yeah, I'm hoping the turnout will be great. I have, you know, Brandon's numbers are going up. I was at a big community meeting yesterday and, and people couldn't get in the room. So I think it's you know, it's ascendant. I do want to speak to the question of experience as we kind of wrap up this conversation, too. You know, I, I come from the same generation as Chewy and Luis. Uh, you know, we, we all have more experience than our younger colleagues and comrades. Um, but I think experience can be measured in a lot of different ways. And one of the things that I've tried to be as a kind of humble elder in this movement, you know, is to defer to a set of experiences I have not had. You know, I think uh, Brandon has been a teacher in the public schools, was one of the sit-in uh, leaders at Diet High School in 2015, fighting for education for all our children. Uh, we work together in something called the R3 Coalition here, uh, Reimagine Chicago. And um, in that coalition, you know, there were folks fighting for immigrant rights, labor rights, uh, LGBTQ rights. And so that big tent of, for this generation, and sometimes they have a different lexicon and uh, all kinds of different sensibilities that my generation did not have. So, so I'm, I'm seeing Brandon as a candidate of the future. You know, we all love Harold Washington. Uh, Brandon was only seven or eight years old then, so we can't hold him accountable for not being there for that. But we do, you know, whoever is the most progressive candidate, we will support in the final runoff. But, but I'm hoping that the most, uh, a movement, uh, affiliated candidate in this round, which I think is Brandon Johnson, will will prevail. And 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 we need Chewy, Chewy to fight that fight in Congress. We're counting on him. So, Barbara Ransby, um, yeah. Barbara Ransby, we thank you so much for being with us. Historian, author, and activist, uh, Luis Gutierrez, former Democratic Congress member from Illinois. But we're going to stay in Chicago. Yes, this is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we look at how the former Chicago Black Panther leader, Fred Hampton, is linked to a measure on the ballot in next Tuesday's election in Chicago. It was December 4th, 1969, when Chicago police raided uh, Fred Hampton's apartment and shot and killed him in his own bed. Hampton was just 21. Evidence shows the FBI, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, and the Chicago police had conspired to assassinate him. The demand for police accountability for Fred Hampton and Mark Clark's murder has grown in the half-century that followed. It reached a turning point in 2014, with the Chicago police murdered black teenager Laquan McDonald. Dash camera video of the murder shows police shot McDonald 16 times, then tried to cover it up. This and other killings by Chicago police in the protests that followed reinvigorated the local movement for community control of the police. Now, as part of the February 28th election, Chicago residents will have a chance to vote for candidates to local police councils. They'll choose three representatives from each of the city's 22 police districts to have a say on community policing issues across the city. Seven will be part of a community commission for public safety and accountability that plays a role in police oversight bodies and setting police department policy. 
For more, we're joined by Frank Chapman, longtime Chicago activist, field organizer and education director of the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, and a leader in the campaign for an elected Civilian Police Accountability Council. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's been half a century um, <clears throat> in coming to this point where these—where the mayoral race will also have these elections taking place. Frank, explain the significance. Well, I think you've explained it to some extent already. This is the first time—this is the first time in, in, in history, first time ever in the United States, that our people are being given a democratic option to say who polices their communities and how their communities are policed. And as you pointed out in your introduction, uh, this, uh, this particular chapter was opened up by Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party back in 1969, when they put this uh, uh, on the agenda, on the black agenda. Uh, today, we have made a lot of progress since then. Today, we have an ordinance that's in effect called Empowering Communities for Public Safety. And on February the 28th, we're going to elect people to the police district councils. These are people who are mainly working-class people. Most of them are black and brown. And none of them are professional politicians. So this is a very democratic grassroots movement. These people are going to be holding the police accountable going forward. Nothing like this has ever happened before in U.S. history. And so it's going to be a history-making event on February the 28th when we elect these uh, representatives to the district councils to hold the police accountable for what they do and what they don't do. Uh, and Frank, if you could explain uh, some of what the actual uh, powers or responsibilities of uh, uh, these um, these commu these district community groups will be, because I, I don't see in the law whether they really have any enforcement or or, or uh, measures to to directly hold the police accountable, other than communicating with them on a regular basis. But they do. Uh, it, it is in the law. Um, what we, um, what the, what the district councils will do, the district councils will nominate uh, 14 people who will uh, be sent to the mayor to be appointed to a citywide uh, commission. She has to pick seven people out of those 14. She can't dismiss the 14. She has to pick seven out of the 14, or he has to pick seven out of the 14. Whoever the mayor is, and. What happens after that is that these seven people, two representing the south side, two representing the west side, and two representing the north side, will, and one at large, they will have oversight over all police policy, everything that the police do. Uh, and we will hire and fire whoever is uh, the head of the uh, uh, a COPRA, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, which is the investigative body. So we will have uh, we will have we will have we will have powers to look at all police policies and question them and make initiatives of our own if we think policy should be changed. Like for example, uh, no knock warrants, stop and frisk. You know, we can change all of that, and we will have the power to do that. Once we get, uh, once this election is over, and we get our people into place. 
Now, there's some reports as well that the PBA or some law enforcement groups are also backing candidates uh, uh, in the uh, uh, in these races. Could you talk about that as well? Sure. The FOP has been opposed to this from the beginning. So them running candidates means only one thing, and that is that they're going to they're try to torpedo our ability to implement this ordinance. We know who the candidates are. We, we are... We're going to expose them, and we know what their agenda is. Their agenda is that, is that this law not be enforced. So we are going to confront them, and we're going to beat them. Most of the people on the ballot, and you can't vote for somebody if they're not on the ballot, most of the people on the ballot are our people that I've already explained who they are, mainly black and brown people who are working class people who have no who have no. Uh, 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 a background in being politicians or things of that sort. These are community grassroots people who want to see a change, who want to hold the police accountable for the crimes that they commit. Well, as we wrap up, Frank, our next guest is Angela Davis, who you do know well, who you know well. Um, you fought for her freedom, and then she fought for yours. Can you— Introduce her for us uh, as we move into this last segment, which is about the assassination, uh, this 58th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. Well, she fought for my freedom. She got out before I did. Uh, I was doing life in 50 years when Angela was freed. And uh, after she was freed in, in 1971, they went on to found the National Alliance Against Racism and Political Repression in 1973. And in 1976, I came home. And I, that would not have happened had it not been for Angela Davis and the movement that was built around her, which was the uh, 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 the uh, United Committees of Free Angela Davis and all political prisoners. So I'm internally grateful to her and the movement for uh, for my own freedom. And that's why I've been engaged in this ever since. Well, Frank, we thank you so much for being with us. Frank Chapman, longtime Chicago activist, field organizer and education director of the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, and a leader of the campaign for an elected Civilian Police Accountability Council. Next up, we speak with the professor, with the activist, with the author, Angela Davis. Stay with us. I Wonder by Nina Simone. She would have been 90 years old today. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Fifty-eight years ago today, 
On February 21, 1965, Malcolm X was shot dead as he spoke at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem. He'd just taken the stage, began speaking, when shots ran out, rang out, riddling his body with bullets. Malcolm X was 39 years old, just like Martin Luther King three years later when he was assassinated, 39 years old. We spend the rest of the hour today looking at the life and legacy of Malcolm X with the renowned activist and scholar, Dr. Angela Davis, who's giving a keynote address tonight at the Shabazz Center, the site of the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, where Malcolm X was assassinated as the center launches a new Malcolm X education curriculum. Angela Davis, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us and have you in New York City. Um, talk about the significance of this day, 58 years ago, Malcolm X gunned down. Well, first of all, uh, thank you, Amy, for inviting me uh, to uh, spend some time reflecting on the legacy of Malcolm X on, on this day, his, his, his birthday. Um, well, Unfortunately, um, Malcolm has been um, relegated to the position of, uh, of, of pretty much being the opposite of, of uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, uh, we know uh, King as the, the advocate of nonviolence. We know uh, Malcolm as the, 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 the militant, the, the revolutionary. Uh, and you know, I think it's important to uh, think more deeply about uh, the legacy of, of Malcolm X. Uh, to think, for example, about his internationalism. Uh, one of the problems we confront in this country is uh, the, the 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 kind of U.S. centric uh, position uh, um, of, of 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 so many. Um, in, in the issues that we address, uh, in the in the in the ways that that uh, even activists, even radical activists, tend to look at the U.S. as the center of the world. Uh, you know, Malcolm emphasized human rights um, in as opposed to simply civil rights, uh, because he argued it was not simply a question of this particular nation-state. It was about the world. It was about Africa. It was about Latin America. It was about Asia. He very specifically emphasized uh, uh, the um, the importance of Afro-Asian solidarity uh, in connection with uh, Bandung. So there is so much that we can learn from reflecting on uh, the legacy of Malcolm X, especially now. We need to pay attention uh, to the way in which he in insisted on support and solidarity with the Palestinian people. And Angela, the nationally renowned civil rights attorney, Benjamin Crump, uh, tweeted he will file a, quote, notice of claim with intent to sue government agencies and the NYPD for the alleged assassination and fraudulent concealment of evidence surrounding Malcolm X's murder. Uh, you're going to be speaking at the Audubon, uh, the Audubon Ballroom or the, what was once the Audubon Ballroom. Your sense of what the questions that remain uh, unresolved in terms of uh, the killing of Malcolm? 
Well, of course, uh, we, we, we all assume that uh, uh, the government uh, had something to do with the assassination of, 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 of Malcolm. And it's, uh, it's actually uh, quite remarkable that 50 days, 58 years later, uh, we are still addressing uh, the, the, the question of uh, who was responsible uh, for his, his death. Uh, uh, that is an important issue. But as I was saying uh, previously, I think even more important is to examine uh, the, the, the ways in which uh, uh, Malcolm advocated uh, political positions and a vision of the future, uh, which was much more capacious, which was broad, which was internationalist. Uh, and I think that w we have a great deal to learn um, with respect to the 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 the, the activism uh, that we are uh, developing today. Uh, uh, the, the the whole question of 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 of, of uh, uh, police crimes, uh, racist uh, uh, policing, which we saw in the previous segment uh, on the situation in in, in Chicago. Uh, you know, Malcolm always placed these issues in a larger context, and I think that we can um, learn a great deal from that legacy today. Well, I want to turn to Republican Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. And the reason we want to turn to him on this day um, is the question is, what will the students of tomorrow be learning about not just African-American history, but American history? This is Governor DeSantis telling reporters why he opposed the original AP African-American Studies course. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids. And so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality, abolishing prisons, that's a political agenda. There's a lot to chew on here, Angela Davis. And, you know, we just had Barbara Ransby on Democracy Now! talking about the Chicago mayoral race. Barbara Ransby, you, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, Bell Hooks, um, as well as many other African-American scholars, have now been excised from the required AP African-American Studies curriculum that was released by the College Board on the first day of Black History Month, February 1st. I'm wondering—and now emails have come out that show the College Board and the Florida Department of Education were communicating through the last year—if you can respond to Governor DeSantis, which is not just responding to the governor of Florida, but state after state are cracking down on what we learn about American history. Well, Amy, I think what we're witnessing um, is— an attempt to prevent the consolidation of uh, the gains we have achieved um, over the last period. Uh, uh, during the COVID pandemic, uh, vast numbers of people became aware of the need to shift their understanding of racism uh, uh, from uh, 
uh, a context that emphasized individual agency, uh, uh, character flaws, character defects, to a structural understanding of racism. And I think that, um, you know, given the fact that we're also involved in this conversation about Malcolm X, Malcolm emphasized uh, uh, the structural nature, the systemic, the institutional nature of of racism, uh, precisely because uh, uh, there is now a more collective uh, consciousness of the ways in which racism is embedded in the structures and and and, and systems of this society uh, DeSantis and others are attempting to turn the clock back on that this is this is um actually the significance of naming uh um uh, uh, this um uh um process uh, critical race theory, uh, because critical race theories also insisted on understanding racism um, as a structural phenomenon. So um, it's, it's, it's inevitable that uh, whenever we move in a progressive direction, there are going to be the countervailing forces that attempt to push us back. And this is precisely what is happening in connection with uh, uh, Governor DeSantis's uh, efforts uh, to characterize uh, black studies as uh, uh, a, uh, a way of making white children feel guilty or, or uh, you know, all of the, uh, the, the actual uh, ridiculous uh, ways in which what is supposed to be education is actually presented as um, ideology. And Angela, when you talk about the uh, exposing the structural basis of racism, we've seen in the last few years in response to uh, the the uh, um, immense upsurge of the Black Lives Matter movement, the uh, efforts by universities, by foundations, by corporations uh, to increasingly trumpet and promote uh, diversity, equity and inclusion uh, as the uh, solution. Uh, and yet a lot of that often focuses on individual biases, not structural biases. I'm wondering your thoughts on the, the, the dangers and the, and the directions that the, the so-called DEI uh, movement is heading in. Yeah, that's, uh, of course, very complicated, uh, because on the, one, on the one hand, it's good to see that uh, people are trying to take active measures to begin to root out uh, racism uh, within institutions, uh, corporations, uh, uh, educational institutions, etc. Um, but at the same time, um, when we... Uh, consider that this strategy, uh, which is, um, I would say, sometimes a rather simplistic strategy, is not going to be successful in, address, in addressing uh, the kind of embedded racism uh, that has its roots in slavery and colonialism. Uh, uh, and one of the things m- many of us have been saying is that uh, 
when this collective awareness uh, arose in connection with the uh, police lynching of, of George Floyd and the police murder of Breonna Taylor uh, during that period of the COVID uh, pandemic, it was... Um, it was over a hundred years too late. Uh, this process should have begun in the immediate aftermath of, of slavery. And now we're playing catch up. It's not going to, to happen as a result of one strategy. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, but of course, uh, in, in, in this country, we tend to rely on, uh, you know, what is the easiest uh, uh, method? What is the, the, the simplest method? Uh, um, and and you know i'm i'm hoping that people who are involved in this dei movement will recognize that it can not only be about diversity and equity and inclusion it has to be about justice it has to be also about transforming the institutions that are responsible uh, for the exclusion and are responsible uh, for the racist structures in the first place And I'm wondering also, in terms of the, uh, uh, you, you mentioned the issue of not confronting the, the, the impacts in, uh, of uh, colonialism and, and imperialism around the world. We're seeing increasingly uh, the people of the global south going in a different direction uh, from uh, the uh, European powers and their conflicts. Uh, we're seeing, uh, for instance, Latin America now becoming a real a focal point of progressive governance throughout the continent. Uh, your thoughts about how the anti-colonial struggle uh, is, is, uh, is affecting people here in the United States, or is it at all? Are, are people aware of what's going on in other parts of the global south? Well, of course, we need um, greater uh, awareness. Uh, uh, what is happening in and, and, and Latin America is so central to our uh, struggles for a, a more radical democracy, uh, for socialism. Uh, 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 the fact that Lula won in, in Brazil is uh, uh, a sign, I think, of more uh, you know, radical um, uh, movements to come. Uh, I think that... Uh, the, the fact that someone like Francia uh, Marquez could be vice president of Colombia is, uh, is, is, is a sign of the impact of progressive and radical uh, movements. Uh, uh, yes, and l let me again point back to uh, the fact that uh, on, on this day, Malcolm X's birthday, uh, Malcolm Always. His assassination. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The birthday is on May 19th, the assassination on uh, February 23rd. Thank you so much, uh, Amy, of, of February 21st, this day. Um, that um, that uh, the, the insistence on uh, imagining ourselves as a part of, of, of larger movements, uh, 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 a world, a planet, planetary concerns, uh, which means that we also have to take into consideration uh, what is happening uh, to uh, the environment uh, of, of 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 the world. So I, um, you know, I'm 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 hoping 
that uh, in our campaigns, our local campaigns, such as what is happening in Chicago right now, we don't lose sight of the fact uh, that we are a part of uh, a larger context, a planet uh, uh, that will uh, have no future if we are not successful in uh, some of these radical democratic struggles. Well, Angela Davis, we want to thank you so much for being with us. World-renowned abolitionist, author, activist, distinguished professor emerita at University of California, Santa Cruz, author of many books, including a new updated edition of her autobiography, Angela Davis. Um, tonight, uh, Angela Davis will be giving the keynote address at the Audubon Ballroom, which is now the Shabazz Center. Um, democracynow.org will be linking to that YouTube stream. Ben Crump will also be speaking. I will be saying a few words. And Malcolm X's daughter will be introducing and giving a keynote as well, Dr. Ilyasa Shabazz. So go to democracynow.org for the details. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.